This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, as Denver gears up for Major League Baseball's All-Star Game, we look at its connection to another American pastime, politics. Plus, we hear about how a decline in community pharmacies impacts those who live in small rural towns. I don't know how many times we've had to make, you know, a 120-mile trip just to pick up a prescription. And we learn about efforts to help protect a tiny Colorado mammal from the effects of climate change. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Major League Baseball's annual All-Star Game is happening Tuesday at Denver's Coors Field. Thousands of fans have already flocked to the area, providing a welcome economic boost as we continue to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's no secret that politics played a major role in the league's decision to bring the game to Colorado. MLB officials pulled the game from its originally planned location in Atlanta after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law sweeping voting restrictions in March. And though America's official pastime is baseball, and many fans are excited for this week's big game, the unofficial American pastime for many is politics. And with this year's game deeply ensconced in the world of politics, the Colorado Sun took a look at the political spending by some of Colorado's professional sports leaders over the last decade. Sandra Fish is the reporter who worked on that analysis, and she's here with us now to talk about what she found. Sandra, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Hi, Henry. Before we get into what you found, let's start with what you were looking at. When we talk about political spending, what are we talking about? Just campaign donations? You know, there's a lot of different kinds of political spending. There's spending at the federal level. There's spending at the state level. And, you know, there's spending directly to candidate committees. And there's spending to political party committees. There's spending to super PACs. At the state level, you see a lot of spending on issue committees because we have almost every year statewide ballot initiatives, and those committees can raise a ton of money. That and super PACs at the federal and state level can take unlimited sums of money. And that takes us to the work you did here with some of these Colorado sports leaders. Let's dive into some of that, starting with Rockies co-owner Dick Monfort. In your piece, I thought this was funny, right, that he may not be willing to spend big on Nolan Arenado, but he has dropped a lot on political candidates. Tell us what you found. He and his brother, Charlie, are co-owners of the Rockies. But most of the money that's going to politics is coming from Dick. And he's put like $25,000 into the Colorado Republican Committee at the federal level in the past 10 years. He's donated to Cory Gardner quite a bit in his two contests for U.S. Senate. And he's donated to other Republican candidates, entirely Republican candidates for Congress at the federal level. You know, he's also put quite a bit of money into those ballot initiatives, more than $80,000 over 10 years. Last year in 2020, he put $50,000 into the ballot initiative to raise nicotine taxes to pay for universal preschool in Colorado. And that was successful. He's put money into several initiatives aiming to raise money for education at the state level. And also a lot of money into the MLB pack. Both he and his brother each donated $40,000 from 2011 through this year. And, you know, that pack, I think that they've spent $1.5 million giving to candidates over the past 10 years. They give kind of equally, whereas Dick Monfort donates primarily to Republicans The MLB sort of evens things out and gives to candidates. You know, I would note that 
comparatively speaking, the NFL gives actually a lot more money to candidates than Major League Baseball. The NBA doesn't even have a pack. And National League Hockey has spent virtually no money giving in politics in the last 10 years. So it's really the MLB and the the National Football League that are big donors. Well, let's turn to football. Uh, You also looked at Colorado football legend John Elway, who is now president of football operations for the Denver Broncos, and found that he was a big pro sports spender. Uh, Tell us what you found here. He's given far more in the last 10 years than the Monforts have, nearly $154,000. And he gives a lot. Most of his money goes to Republicans, if not all of it. He gave $32,800 to the Republican National Committee in that time. He gave money to a federal leadership committee in 2018 formed by Walker Stapleton when Stapleton was running for governor. And most of that money ended up with the Colorado Republican Party at the state level. He supported a bunch of Republican Senate efforts. He gave $11,000 to the National Republican Senatorial Committee in 2020 and 11200 to a committee that was supporting the two Republicans in Georgia's U.S. Senate runoffs. Earlier this year, both of those were won by Democrats. Having talked through this political spending, what do you think is important for us to understand about the connection between these types of figures and what they spend on politics and sports? You know, I just think it's an interesting aspect that these people are involved politically. And, you know, let's be frank, the reason the All-Star Game is in Denver this year is because of politics, because MLB objected to laws that passed in the Georgia legislature that are restrictive of voting. And, you know, sports are not immune from politics. I went to a game a couple weeks ago and I got a survey the day after. The last question on the survey asked if I consider myself to be a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, or a member of a third party. And that's a, a question I learned from people at the MLB. They're asking, everybody who goes to a game. That was reporter Sandra Fish, who wrote about the political spending by several of Colorado's most notable professional sports leaders. You can find a link to her reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Sandra, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me, Henry. Climate change is raising temperatures, changing weather patterns, and causing droughts. It also impacts wildlife, like the American pika. Global warming is threatening its high mountain habitat in Colorado and other parts of the West. But a group of scientists and outdoor enthusiasts are trying to help. KUNC's Ashley Pocconi has more. Thank you all for coming here today. On a rainy morning in late June, a group of about 30 people gathered in a parking lot off Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park. You are joining a long tradition of pika patrollers scouring the Rocky Mountains of Colorado for pika and helping us to learn about them and ensure that we are aware of the trajectory of them in Colorado. That's Alex Wells. He's a co-director of the Colorado Pika Project. If you've ever been hiking above treeline, you've probably seen or heard the critters. But if you haven't... Pika, you're looking for something like the size of a russet potato, really fluffy, gray or brown, Mickey Mouse ears, no tail. The crew heads out of the parking lot and down a nearby trail. 
We're clearly in the alpine tundra. We're surrounded by mountain peaks that still have traces of snow. Shrubs and rocks cover the ground instead of trees. About a half mile in, we stop at a patch of big, broken rocks called a talus. This is prime habitat for the pika. The first thing we look for is scat. To identify pika scat, you're going to want to look underneath rocks, like there or there. Oftentimes, larger rocks will have scat underneath it. And you're looking for something about the size of a peppercorn. And midway through his explanation, a pika chimes in. So that's scat. Anyone have an idea for what our next kind of pika sign might be? Yeah, so pika calls. So you guys just heard what a pika sounds like. It's just classic squeaky toy. Pikas also create hay piles, neat stacks of grass and leafy plants under rocks. Megan Mueller is also a co-director of the project. She says they hoard their stashes for the winter months. There was a study in southern Colorado that found that the average pika hay pile there was 60 pounds of fresh vegetation. And if you do the calculation about how many trips with mouthfuls of vegetation that is, it's 14,000 trips. Pikas like the cold, but as temperatures warm, their habitat is changing. PICA scientist and University of Colorado Boulder professor Chris Ray says a warmer alpine means other animals might move into their territory, bringing diseases along with them. We might have ways of helping pikas uh, as, as their environment deteriorates. Um, we might have ways of sort of mitigating that through controlling diseases. The Colorado PICA project monitors specific sites across the state. After this training session and throughout the summer, each volunteer in this group will go out on their own to look for pikas. In addition to finding out whether pikas are, are disappearing from our sites, we're also very interested in trying to figure out um, if they are starting to decline because of climate change, why is that? Volunteers will submit what they find by the end of the summer. Then scientists like Ray use the results to determine if pikas live in the area and what that means for the species overall. Data from this have gone into recently a, a paper in Nature Climate Change, for example. So your, your data are making a difference and an impact on the scientific world right now. After we finish looking for scat, hay piles, and pikas themselves, the group begins to walk back to the parking lot. I love being outside. I spend a ton of time in pika territory, so I see them on hikes and runs and things. Volunteer Abby Hughes says the mountain views around us are exactly why she signed up. I always thought it was really interesting to learn a little bit more about them and see how they're being affected by climate change and how we can help monitor that. Although most of the group just learned about pika signs today, co-director Megan Mueller has been working on this project for 10 years. She says it's about more than tracking the animals. We want to be able to predict what the impacts are going to be out in advance so that we have an ability to try to figure out strategies to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Before the group wraps up, Mueller and her team pass out supplies, baggies to collect scat, GPS units, and more. In the coming months, volunteers will use this gear to conduct their very own PICA surveys. Ashley Picconi, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
The number of community pharmacies in rural areas has rapidly declined in recent years. As the economics of the business make it increasingly difficult for them to survive, people are relying on chain pharmacies in more populated areas to pick up medications. This can sometimes mean drives of more than 100 miles round trip to get prescriptions. In Walden, Colorado, population less than 600 people, residents are banding together to pick up medications from larger towns and deliver them to each other. Joining us now to talk about this is Kaiser Health News reporter Marky and Haraluk, who's been reporting on the issue of pharmacy deserts in the rural West. And Walden resident and mother Whitney Millick also joins us to share how her family and neighbors are coping with not having a nearby pharmacy. Marky and I want to start with you. How did you first start reporting on rural pharmacy deserts? Yeah, Erin, I've actually been looking into this for, for more than a year now, and it all started with Walden. I had uh, uh, just been following some machinations about uh, uh, behavioral health care in Colorado, and uh, one of the organizers that movement had mentioned Walden and how they did sort of come together to to solve the lack of a of pharmacy access in their town. And I just thought, wow, what, what a great story of a, you know, a town overcoming uh, the, the gaps that the healthcare create, system created for them. What did you find out about why pharmacies are disappearing from rural areas? Over the past uh, 10, 15 years, the economics for independently owned community pharmacies has really changed. Uh, a lot of that started with uh, the Medicare drug benefit, where um, you know used to be seniors would go down to their corner drugstore and pay cash for their for their prescriptions, and now most of them have some sort of a drug plan with all sorts of rules and regulations that uh, you know everybody's trying to make their money and they uh, scrimp down a little bit on the money they pay community pharmacists. So that was the first sort of trend that started to undercut uh, finances for for independently owned pharmacies. And then you saw the rise of what's known as uh, pharmacy benefit managers. So, you know, when you or I have a health plan and we have a drug benefit attached to that, the health plan usually contracts with a pharmacy benefit manager to do exactly what it sounds like, manage that pharmacy benefit. And over the years, they've become increasingly creative about ways where they can squeeze the amount of money that they're paying to these independent community pharmacies. And so it's been a lot harder for pharmacists to uh, keep the lights on in these small, uh, small town pharmacies. And then what kind of effect does that have on residents? It's a huge effect because you think about it. I mean, sure, like a lot of us now get uh, get our drugs through the mail. And that's that's great if you're taking the same medication every month and you can plan ahead for that. But, you know, what about the, the ear infection that your kid comes up with and you need antibiotics that day? There might not be a pharmacy close by. So there's all these you know, sort of acute issues that come up. But we also hear about uh, individuals having trouble with the mail delivery, you know. And if you're taking an important medication that keeps you healthy, missing two, three, four days of, the, of that medication might not be a very good option for you. And then, you know, pharmacies also play much larger role than simply just distributing drugs. You know, in many small towns, pharmacists have become the last provider of healthcare. Pharmacists are trained to, to be able to tell their customers, is this a problem you can treat with an over-the-counter drug and, and wait till your next doctor's appointment? Or is this something you really need to get to the ER right away? And, and without that sort of medical expertise, a lot of uh, patients won't have that help 
help in making that decision. I am curious about what the impact of not having a local pharmacy really feels like in a community. Uh, Whitney Mellick, you live in Walden. I understand your family needs prescriptions filled regularly for your eight-year-old son, Wade, who has epilepsy. Can you briefly describe what kind of care he needs? When we moved here, we didn't know that this is the life we were going to have. He was just a little, he was three months old when we moved here. So we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. And when he was six months old uh, is when he was diagnosed. And at that point, the pharmacy issue, it wasn't too bad because we were always going somewhere for doctor's appointments. It seems like the first two years of his life, we were always out going to doctor's appointments, running more tests. So it wasn't a big deal to get his meds. It wasn't until that kind of stopped and we were home more that we really started to see how difficult it was going to be. And with him especially so, because some of his medications are controlled substances. Does that mean they're not available by mail? Yeah, they're not available by mail. You obviously have to be a little cautious of, you know, who you're going to ask to pick them up. You know, you don't want um, just somebody you don't know going to pick them up. But then also you can't then transfer them from pharmacy to pharmacy. So oftentimes what we do is, you know, I'll look at my calendar and I'll say, oh, I'm going to be in Steamboat this week. So we send our meds there. And then something happens and we don't end up going to Steamboat that week, but we need to go to Laramie. Well, that's a controlled substance. We can't transfer it across the state line once it's at a pharmacy. So then you end up making an extra trip and it's um, it becomes really difficult to, to try and manage it and really expensive. Um, I don't know how many times we've had to make, you know, a 120 mile trip just to pick up a prescription for him. This sounds exhausting as well as expensive. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be. And, um, you know, we we're starting, I say this, you know, he's eight years old now. So we've been dealing with this for quite a while, but we're still, you know, we think we find the rhythm. And it just takes one small thing to to throw off that rhythm. Like if he grows, if he gains more than 10 pounds, one of his medications has to change. Now, I understand that you and your community in Walden have created a sort of network of people to pick up and deliver medications. How does that work? We had lived here maybe six months and there wasn't a Facebook group in our town to sell things. And, and I was trying to sell baby stuff. So I created this Facebook page, North Park Bargains as just a means to be able to sell or find stuff that you need. And I had no idea what it was going to turn into. It turned into this huge community page where um, you could ask for support, you know, post your events, missing animals. I mean, it's really our community outreach page for the whole community. There's over a thousand people on it now. People that used to live here and moved away are people um, we see a lot. We have people that live somewhere else and their elderly parents live here. And almost every day there's a request on there, you know, is anybody going to Steamboat? I need this medication picked up at, you know, this pharmacy. Uh, Anybody going to Granby? And it's almost a daily occurrence. And most of the time I'd say you're going to find somebody that's going that day, if not the next day. Marky, and let me turn back to you for just a moment. In your reporting, have you encountered other community help networks like the one in Walden, uh, or is, is what they're doing unique? It is somewhat unique, but, uh, you know, I did learn about uh, a similar effort in Silverton where 
Um, you know, again, the community didn't have a pharmacy. It was an hour drive to Durango to pick up medications. And they, again, sort of crowdsourced a solution. There was a woman who was uh, hired by the clinic to uh, pick up laboratory samples and drop them off in Durango. And she became sort of the delivery service that everybody called. And so she ended up formalizing that. And that's kind of now her her job. But that was really sort of organically grown out of that community. And we do see that a lot across the United States that um, when the healthcare system sort of fails, individuals, because of necessity, invent some solution to it. And, and I think that's what's really wonderful about this Walden story. I mean, it is, it is such a beautiful, picturesque place. It's such a wonderful community of people who, who know their neighbors and, and are willing to help out. And, uh, you know, that's what really sort of attracted me most to this story. Mark Ian Haraluk is senior Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Whitney Millick is a resident of Walden, Colorado. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. After a hiatus in 2020 because of the pandemic, the Chautauqua Silent Film Series is back in its familiar home in Boulder's Chautauqua Auditorium. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film at CU Denver, the series has breadth and depth and a lineup of films that are satisfying to see. In his brilliant comedy, Steamboat Bill Jr., Buster Keaton plays a Boston-raised, prissy, inept son, visiting his tough and combative steamboat captain father somewhere in the South. Buster's mincing ways get his father thrown in jail, so Buster goes to visit him with a very long loaf of bread, which only convinces the father that his son is a wuss. It gets worse as Buster makes odd hand gestures about the bread, trying to communicate something to his disgusted father while not letting the confused sheriff in on what's happening. But Buster's father understands only that the kid is an idiot. Buster Keaton often based his comedy on how the surface of something does not reveal its essence, meaning what's inside. And inside this too long loaf of bread are tools for his pop to break out of jail. That too is an idiotic idea, but it's a gesture. So contained within this classic hilarious sequence is the relationship between father and son, as well as the developing character of the boy. And when the bread falls apart because Buster carried it through a rainstorm, you understand that the physical world is unpredictable and not always helpful. Buster Keaton, a nearly illiterate man, turns out to be one of the most complex artists of the 20th century, and also one of the funniest. Silent films may have been mostly black and white, and also silent, but they're as sophisticated in character, story, visual texture, and emotion as any films made now. Plus, they're silent. No talking, which in our too loud world is a blessing. In silent movies, the pictures do the talking, and the good makers of silent films understood how to put pictures together to sometimes make extraordinary art. The Chautauqua silent film series has been running for years, although not last year because of the pandemic. But for many of those years, the films were chosen by people who didn't know much about silent film and in some cases didn't care. This year's films, though, have been picked by two of America's finest silent film music accompanists, Hank Troy and Rodney Sauer. Together, they have a good handle on the world of silent film, but more than that, they know the films as musicians. They understand the movements of the films and the rhythms. They've chosen films that are beautiful and interesting, and in two cases, not often seen. The recently restored Xander the Great is a typical movie melodrama of the 1920s that's sometimes silly and far-fetched. 
It starts with a young girl in an Ohio orphanage, and about 20 minutes in, the pictures become a western with desperados roaming the Arizona-Mexico border and a beautifully silly rabbit joke that runs through the movie. It's all perfectly inoffensive viewing, and kids will love the rabbits. But what's exceptional is Marion Davies in the lead. Davies got infamous as the girlfriend of newspaper tyrant William Randolph Hearst, and Orson Welles mocked her in Citizen Kane. But Davies is a fine actor. Her character here is spontaneous and surprising. She shows up in a gleeful tumble of laundry and doesn't let up even when the film turns to melodrama. She's a joy to watch, and she lifts the whole film with her bright energy. The 1929 German film Hound of the Baskervilles, on the other hand, is an accomplished film. It comes from the famous Sherlock Holmes story, and it's made in the potent, threatening style of German expressionism. Darkness dominates the film as grisly killings take place on the infamous moors at night, although off-screen. Light feels elusive and temporary and partial. Sherlock Holmes needs his flashlight to light up even parts of the Baskerville estate. It's creepy and also exhilarating. And the Chautauqua series includes the elegant anti-war film All Quiet on the Western Front, which should be required of all of us. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mofshevitz. The Chautauqua Silent Film Series runs through August 4th. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we look at how the return of tourism to mountain resort towns may be contributing to their community's housing crisis. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.